Crom. Welcome back, everybody, to the Cromcast, the weird fiction and pugilism podcast powerful enough to turn goat piss into gasoline. I'm one of your hosts here, Jonathan. I'm Luke. And I'm Josh. And we are here tonight to talk about an unfinished essay called Men of Iron by Robert E. Howard. And we've kind of paired it together with a cinematic version of A Man of Iron. Hey, yo. Rocky Balboa. Hey, yo. Hey, <laughs> yo. <laughs> I have a feeling most of tonight will consist of us impersonating Sylvester Stallone. Josh and I, Luke, will be too dignified for such affairs. He'll go. He'll go. Merges, uh, Burgess Meredith. I just. Don't, oh yeah. I just don't have the uh, the voice that you guys do. Merges Barrett. I said Merges Barrett. He's <laughs> <laughs> the cheap knockoff version. But we're excited to bring the show to you here tonight. We think that you'll all enjoy hearing about this unfinished essay and seeing it paired with this movie because they kind of fit together really well. It makes us all wonder if REH would have enjoyed watching Rocky with us the other night when we all turned it on. Definitely. But before we get to all that, let us talk about our libations. What are we drinking, gentlemen? Luke, would you like to lead us off? Sure. I have a bottle. Uh, I'm on the ass end of a bottle of Rittenhouse Rye. So that's what we got going here as far as whiskey. Both of you? What, what, what's the other thing, Josh? Oh, I've got a uh, fresh six-pack of West Sixth Brewing Amber Ale. This is pretty tasty. Although I wish that I had picked up some of the uh, Sister Sue Stout. That is delicious. That's from West Sixth? Yeah. Cool. West Sixth, that's a good brewery. <laughs> Do you still jog with them? No, I haven't. I haven't jogged there in probably two years now. Just drink the beer. I just drink the beer, yeah. <laughs> I am digging some bullet bourbon tonight. I know I promised what? Wild Turkey 101. I, I ran out, but I still had some bullets, <laughs> so that's what I'm drinking down tonight. That works. Cool. And now we get to move on to everybody's favorite portion of the program. One thing. Luke, would you like to lead us off in one thing as well? I I sure will. Uh, my thing is uh, a series that came out on Netflix. A little bit, I'm a little bit past the the prime for talking about this. I think, but I just wrapped it up here pretty recently, so it's it's the prime for me. Uh, and it's the the show, the OA. I had a lot of fun watching that show. It is it is just batshit crazy. It's but it's a lot of fun. It's it's a head scratcher. It tugs at your heartstrings. It's it's good stuff. I really do like it. Which Green Lantern stars in that show? Uh, Sinestro. <laughs> Ooh. So is so this is actually not a Green Lantern thing, but <clears throat> no, is it a science? Is, is it a sci-fi, a sci-fi show? It is a mix of science fiction and 
magical realism and like with a backdrop of I think like sort of northern mythology there's a lot of 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 that that creeps into it Canadian mythology I think more like I don't know about Viking stuff I mean you're not gonna see like uh Thor or or Loki dropping in but there's a lot of of more northern uh Slavic mythology that that creeps into the to the mm. the symbols within the show. It's pretty crazy, but it's it's you know uh, uh, a girl shows up back home. A girl, a woman, uh, a middle uh, middle twenties woman shows back up. She's been missing for some time. She uh, was blind, but now she sees. And it's just like the first episode is just so bonkers. It's hard to even explain what the show's about uh not to like not not to spoil it or anything it's just like it's just even hard to even talk about beyond a longer form conversation so Mm. i'm I'm curious to see what you guys think about it whenever you get a chance to watch it i want to talk to talk to some people about it uh and if any of our listeners have, have, have watched it and you're into it let me know what you think that sounds fun Josh, would you like to go next? Sure. I've I've actually been watching a TV show that took me back to my childhood that was recently uploaded to Netflix, and that is the animated version of the real Ghostbusters. <laughs> did you yeah. ever did you ever watch that when you were a kid? Oh yeah, I was really into that cartoon as a kid, man. How about you, Luke? I did. Yeah, yeah. I, I liked it a lot. So i I watched it a lot when I was a kid, and haven't seen it probably since I was eight or nine years old, uh, truth be told. And I did not know that Netflix uploaded it, and I was flipping through, trying to find something to watch. You know how you get the uh, the cereal aisle syndrome when you're flipping through <laughs> Netflix, and you're just like, what do I pick? What do I pick? And you end up spending like 45 minutes, and then it's too late, and you just go to bed. <laughs> um, I don't know if that happens to anyone else. Yeah, it happens to me. Absolutely, sure. yeah. So... I was flipping through and about to give up when I saw the real Ghostbusters and I just pressed play and went back in time and watched Ghostbusters cartoons for the better part of an hour. And, uh, yeah, uh, it, it really took me back. And the one episode that I recommend is flip through. It's, it's maybe 50 episodes in. I mean, there were a lot of episodes of this cartoon, but there is one titled the collect call of Cthulhu where the Ghostbusters have to face down a Cthulhu worshiping cult and ultimately have to fight Cthulhu who that, that cult has summoned into the prime material plane. <laughs> it's, it's wonderful. I don't remember that one. I remember one with a ghost that looked like Orson Welles and talked about his sled. Okay. Do you remember that one? I, I didn't see that one, I guess. Yeah. I liked that cartoon a lot as a kid. Yeah. I was so. into Egon. <laughs> Egon's pretty cool. Uh, yeah. The the voice of um, Garfield, the animated Garfield, does the voice of Peter Vinkman. Yeah. <laughs> which I had forgotten, but uh, that came roaring to the forefront just the other night when I was watching. It was a little distracting. <laughs> but anyway, uh, in case you don't know, all of the real Ghostbusters cartoons on Netflix, so go watch it right now. And then my one thing is a comic book called The Fix. It's from Image Comics. It's a comedy crime book by Nick Spencer and Steve Leiber. And they they previously created The Superior Foes of Spider-Man. 
if you've ever read that book. It's sort of similar to that. It's these two corrupt cops who are trying to work off a debt to a local gangster who's like a crunchy granola gangster. <laughs> he's a real vegan and hipster kind of guy that's in a he's a banjo player in a bluegrass band, like a neo bluegrass band. But he's also a vicious drug dealer on the side. And they're trying to appease him by running a scam with a dog that works at the airport. One of the police dogs <laughs> at the airport. Okay. It's really funny. It's got a lot of swearing in it. If you're into that comedy crime kind of genre, you'll probably dig it too. So check it out. Cool. Cool. I read a little bit of Morning Glories whenever that was like first coming up. And I was, I guess that's really the only thing that I've read of, of, of Spencer's. But he's got a this knack is, for the dialogue, right? Yeah. This is way different than that book, yeah, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He does have a good thing for dialogue. I think he's writing Captain America right now as well, if hmm. you're reading those those books as well. But uh, this is what I would recommend from him. That and Superior Foes is pretty good. With those three things combined, we create an unstoppable juggernaut known as... One thing. So let's talk about this essay first. Does that sound fair? That sounds fair. This is a short essay. Did you realize it, that? I didn't. I And I apologize. I feel like I have failed in my duties as season planner because no. I thought this was going to be a full on like scholarly essay. And the three of us as scientists would be like, yes, of course, this is a publishable essay. Very good. Indeed. Indeed. It would have like a introduction and the materials and methods and a conclusion. <laughs> but really, it's just sort of an idea that he sketched out. Right. Uh, with with some interesting biographical nuggets of some boxers that I guess fall into the category of Iron Man, right? Right. What freaks? What freak of nature makes an Iron Man? We know that the human skull is well built to withstand violence, and that the body muscles may be developed into steel-like toughness. But this alone will not explain the strange, incredible mortal known to the Ring and its followers as an Iron Man. So we talked about a few episodes ago, se several different types, I guess, broad categories of boxers, right, John? Uh, yeah. And so there are punchers. Is that right? Yep. And there are. There are boxer punchers. There okay. are sluggers. Sluggers. And then uh, I can't remember what the title is, but it's like a finesse fighter. Okay. So these guys, these Iron Men, are more along the lines of a puncher, right? Like they stand there and get punched and punch in return? Am I more thinking of a about slugger. this? Okay. Yeah, they fight and they take a lot of damage. They don't have as much necessary pure boxing skill, but they're good at taking the blows and then they can deliver a good slug to take out their opponent after they wear him down. And so Howard mentions five... Iron Men that he wants to go into Joe Grimm battling Nelson, Tom Sharkey, Mike Bowden, and Joe Goddard in doing a little more research on other Iron Men. Um, I found a few more examples. Uh, one of them is Iron Mike Tyson. Would he be yeah. an Iron Man? Oh yeah, absolutely. What about George Foreman? He's both a grill maker and an Iron Man. I could go with that. <laughs> He's an entrepreneur. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so here we have these descriptions, and the one that really caught my attention was Joe Grimm. Yes. And, and Joe Grimm was part of a story we read earlier in the season, one of the first episodes. 
Joe Grimm is is talked about quite a bit by our hero Sailor Steve. So what's he like, Josh? Uh, he's he's a crazy person. It sounds like. <laughs> I think that's he, a fair assessment from what I've read about him as well. Howard says of Grimm that he never weighed over 165 pounds, but he would often face off against people who weighed in excess of 200 Mm -hmm. and he would take the punishment that they dealt him and do it basically with a smile on his face. And, (laughs) (laughs) uh, he was famous for, uh, I guess periodically going over to the ropes at the end of a, Around and saying, I am Joe Grimm. I fear no man. <laughs> That's pretty metal. Which is pretty metal. So the the thing about Joe Grimm, I guess, that captured my imagination here, and it maybe bleeds into the film we're going to discuss, but Joe Grimm, it says, was an Italian. He was from Philadelphia, and yep. he was an Iron Man boxer, right? Yeah. Yeah. He- He's just an interesting character. When I read about him on Wikipedia and in a couple other places, you see his picture and you just can tell that this is a guy with a skull as thick as a as an iron plate. And he I think they have some descriptions of him fighting on on Wikipedia. Uh Jack Johnson, who was like one of the greatest boxers ever to live, said, That man ain't human. I can't <laughs> believe that man is made of flesh and blood. He he just took him to the limit. Sort of an Apollo Creed versus uh, Joe Grimm kind of thing, or Rocky Balboa kind of thing. Mm-hmm. He's just a really interesting character. He's not a good boxer. His record, from what I see right here, is he fought in 152 fights and he won 24. But he's not afraid of anybody. He's not afraid of any man. Yeah, I think we're going to get into a, a good discussion of archetypes, you know, this episode, but this is. I, this is the this is the underdog and this is the character this is the archetype that people love right you love to see the guy that can just stand up there and take it mm-hmm. you know he may not he may not have any edge beyond just determination and that's i think that's a, that's that's just a really cool characterization that you can yeah. you can look at and see but Joe Grimm did not have a happy ending, I don't think. He was committed to a sanitarium and died there in 1913. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, maybe I shouldn't have said he was crazy, but he he does come across as kind of a, a, a lunatic in these accounts of him in the ring, right? Well, and I assume that that has to do with taking all that punishment for as many years as he boxed. You have to imagine his brain was damaged. That could have led to him being committed. But despite all that, he was a wide-open boxer that not even Bob Fitzsimmons, Joe Gann, Sam McVeigh, or Jack Johnson could knock out. He's just, like Luke said, he's this archetype of boxing. Do, do you guys know if if Joe Grimm's losses were, were they just decisions? Yeah, because it doesn't sound like he was ever really knocked out until the end of his career. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's what I gathered too, but I wasn't able to find that anywhere. So Howard was obsessed with these men of iron, as he describes them. Uh, he goes into detail about Joe Grimm. There are some nuggets about Jim Jeffries and um, you know some other boxers here, Tom Sharkey. Uh, but Howard sort of 
didn't he must have put this essay down and never really returned to it, right? I guess, yeah. But there's must be something resonant about an Iron Man boxer. I think so. It's the thing about boxing that intrigues me the most. Like I want to get into boxing and I want to get into hockey and the archetypes in boxing that interest me are these men of iron and the people that interest me in hockey are the enforcers. So like Luke said, these people that don't necessarily have as much skill as, as their partners in, in battle, but they can take a whooping and keep on licking. Yeah, it's cool. I mean, like talking about this here, I'm I'm thinking about like like this is a trope that you see beyond just the ring too, right? Like there's there's a book called The Lies of Locke Lamora, and so Locke Lamora is is a he's a confidence man, and he's a he's a he's a he's a thief, he's a a rogue in a fantasy fantasy setting, but he very much is a Joe Grimm character. Like he is a guy that just gets the tar beat out of him numerous times within that first book. And that's part of his characterization. Like he has the determination and he has the smarts too. Uh, but he also knows that he has to go the distance. He has to be going like willing to take it a step further than the other guy, right? Like he's going to up the stakes and, and, and take it to the, to the next level to ensure that he's going to be the, the winner. Right. Uh, and I think that that's, I think that's just, it's just such a cool, uh, approach to, to, to the game, right? Like whether you're, you're thinking about, uh, like a, a clear, like, logical game that's playing out like if you're if you're a strategist and playing a game of chess or magic the gathering right are you gonna are you just gonna go like all out at the at the chance of like losing yourself like that that in and of itself is a very risky endeavor but it's something that is exciting to watch and so in a in a situation like boxing this is like truly an archetype that that fits the the fashion right like that fits the the setting yeah, definitely. When you when you mentioned the lies of Locke Lamora, it made me think of the Hound, the character the Hound from Game of Thrones, and how he just continually is getting beaten on and beaten up. The yeah. people fear him because he can take punishment and he's able to uh, win as many fights as he loses. Right? Yeah. The honey badger. The honey badger is, is an Iron Man. Yeah, the, the, the mantis shrimp. I was thinking of uh, Gustav and Yodas from Bourbon and Barbarian. Yeah, it's, they take a licking and keep on ticking. You know, it's a, it's a fun it's a fun character in like fictional narratives to get behind because you know, like it makes the story engaging, and that's somebody that's really endearing. And, you know, that's the appeal of Rocky, for sure, the everyman that we'll get to. But in the real world, to find somebody that actually, like, embraces that that approach to whatever challenges they're facing, I mean, it's just, I don't know if, it, if admirable is the right word, but you just step back and say, shit, like, that's, <laughs> they went there, right? Yeah. They did it. <laughs> so why do you think this appealed to, to Howard in particular? Well, I I guess, and I haven't really thought about this in much depth, but these Iron Men seem almost bestial, seem almost uh, more in touch with primeval man, maybe. 
okay. they're they're able to either withstand or forget or ignore their pain in the right. moment and only the 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 barbaric spirit of combat is is there with them whether they are in a boxing ring or they're on a medieval battlefield or or you know fighting uh, a, an ancient wizard in the Hyborian age. Like there's something about this, uh, man of iron trope that sort of, I think is a link to that prime evil man. Maybe. I no, yeah, I think, I don't know <laughs> because it's something that attracts. It's, it's sort of his life in a nutshell, right? He, Maybe he wasn't just boxing for him, but he didn't quit doing what he liked, I guess, even when everybody in town thought he was kind of a nut job. Yeah. And Do you think that's part of it? I, I wonder if maybe he had sort of aspirations of becoming an Iron Man, because if if someone's words aren't able to hurt you and someone's fists are also not able to hurt you, then you're largely invulnerable right you're able to hide behind that ability to to take pain and you know maybe that is appealing or was appealing for howard maybe no i i I think you know it's it's interesting because it's uh it's it's both things like whenever you talk about the the concept of an iron man you you get this like the you you automatically turn your your thoughts towards the galoot or or just brawn over brains and certainly we can talk about that with rocky here too uh but at its base an iron man is not necessarily just brawn it's not a bronze over brain thing it is while it seems to be like a more like a baser uh, sort of more primitive man approach. It's actually like, it's the thing that really, I think Howard would argue makes, uh, humans like truly like human, like what sets them aside, like that indomitable spirit and that ability to like persevere. Like if you are truly a free individual, and you're not chained and tethered by like civilization or, or, or your culture, you're able to sort of like just, just sort of work within yourself and you're, you have something that cannot be rivaled, right? Like regardless of the constraints of your, of your skill set or your, your overall like strength and dexterity, those things be damned, you can still just sort of outlast it by your sheer like will and sort of spirit. Like the bulldog breed. Like the bulldog breed, yeah. Yeah. Tenacity. Maybe that's what spoke to him. Never giving in, never giving up. Why does it speak to you two? For those reasons you just outlined. Oh. To to take the cheap answer, I guess. <laughs> uh I guess we that can edit this part out. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fine. Uh I guess I guess it is appealing because yeah, maybe, maybe, yeah, I don't know. I don't have a good answer for that. <laughs> Do you, Luke? Well, uh, I mean, I think in terms of, 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 of reading and watching and thinking about stories, it's entertainment. Like you can, 
it, it's it's like watching a super like a super a, a feat of super strength or like superhuman sort of uh, abilities at work, right? Uh, and it's aspirational because we all want to be able to to really tap into that that sort of free mindset and and to be like to have that much grit and gumption. Uh, it's mythic. I'm not I, like I'm not going to say it's not something that that is truly unattainable, but at the same time, obviously, you have to acknowledge shortcomings and hindrances, and so this is something that is akin to like heroism. Like being an Iron Man doesn't necessarily mean that you're a hero, but you tend to see those two tropes sort of side by side, right? Sure. Yeah. yeah. We've named a few fictional characters. Can you think of any others that sort of exhibit this? Conan. Conan, yeah. I mean, if if we want to stick within Howard's, you know, literary canon, then yeah, yeah. then Conan more than anyone other than Sailor Steve Costigan. Because Conan is able to, uh, you know, run the fastest, run the furthest, keep going. His his in- endurance is legendary. His battle prowess is is something to behold. I think it's also a very noir kind of trope too. Like yeah. <clears throat> like thinking about like Lock Lamore, it really is like a like a fantasy sort of like uh, running a running a jinx or a con like a that kind of like a heist kind of story but like thinking about uh like like kiss kiss bang bang like uh robert downey jr's character just like gets the piss whipped out of him over and over and over again and he doesn't learn right like right. he just keeps going back for more like that in and of itself is almost like that iron man mentality and so that's like the funny side of the noir kind of genre but then there's the the darker <laughs> truer truer side to the like the original sort of uh, uh, way those stories were put together where it's like people put in horrible situations that they just have to keep pushing just because they have to, right? Like, uh, yeah, I mean, there's just a number of different, like, get Carter, right? Like, the, mm-hmm. the that characterization, the hunter, that kind of thing. The hunter, yeah. I think a lot about Ben Grimm when I think of this. Okay. The thing. He's not the best fighter or the strongest necessarily in the Marvel Universe, but he's always ready for a good scrap, and he's never willing to give up on his friends. I think he's got some quote where, I'm too dumb to collapse, too ugly to die. Uh, He just sort of embodies the spirit that we're talking about. Yeah, nice. I guess uh, maybe Matt Murdock does as well, because he's always getting the crap kicked out of him, and and he just keeps on moving forward. And he's a character that definitely has some pulp influence, right? And uh, Bendis, certainly, and and before him, Frank Miller injected a good dose of noir into that storyline as well. So those those things find a, a nice blend within uh, the Daredevil stories. And Howard's definitely tapped into that vein with Sailor Steve. And I think with this essay, if it had ever gotten finished, it would have been a good synthesis of of this idea of the iron man in real life mm-hmm. i wish he could have gotten it done I, I would like to read that essay maybe in heaven yeah Val Rob Howard. Howard and i can crack open a beer and talk about iron man <laughs> indeed let's talk about rocky now okay let me get another beer because it's gonna be loud 
So is Rocky an Iron Man? Rocky definitely falls into that Iron Man trope. He takes a beating several times in this film. And if you zoom out across the greater Rocky canon, then certainly, yeah, he gets beat on and and gets just as good as he gives, right? But yeah. I think if we narrow our focus to just the first film in the Rocky franchise, the, the 1976 film, I think that certainly you could make the argument that Rocky fits neatly into this this trope of the Iron Man. And can one of you give me sort of the basics of the movie in terms of when it got made and who wrote it and everything? Yeah, so Rocky uh, came out in 76, right? And it was written by Stallone, which I think is kind of a cool point. Uh, it was directed by John Alvidson, and uh, this was this was kind of a sleeper hit, right? Like it, it, it really blew up the year that it came out. Uh, just generally speaking, it, it was critically acclaimed and it's a story that a lot of people really got behind. And it's cool that it's, that it is a, a, a property that has lots and lots of sequels that isn't necessarily, uh, you know, Something that that has like uh, John, you said something around earlier today that says like it doesn't have like superheroes or like laser guns or it's, space it's, guns and lasers. Yeah, <laughs> it's, I mean it's it's noteworthy that it it is more just a real grounded like story about this boxer. I think In the this, first couple movies, yeah, for the first few at least. <laughs> I think that this movie was made with a budget of about a million bucks. But it end up, ended up making hundreds of millions of dollars worldwide. So it was a uh, smash hit. I think it won. Let's see. I have this here. So it won Best Picture. It won Best Director. Uh, John Alvidson. Avildsen, right? A-V-I-L-D-S-E-N. And he actually directed the Karate Kid movies, which I didn't realize, but is a, a pretty cool little tidbit, I think. And it also won the Oscar for Best Film Editing, but it was nominated for uh, uh, Best Actor, uh, Stallone, Best Ac- Actress, uh, Talia Shire, for her portrayal of Adrian, Best Original Screenplay, Best Supporting Actor uh, for Burgess Meredith, not Burgess Meredith, <laughs> Best Supporting Actor, Burt Young, who I think is Polly, maybe? And it was nominated for Best Music uh, for Gonna Fly Now and Best Sound Mixing, which is one of those categories that no one ever really remembers, I guess, but is so important to the success of a film. And how many times have you all seen Rocky? Mm, I guess uh, a good handful. I mean, it's one of those movies that I grew up with. I didn't like Mm. watch it didn't like watch it weekly but it's something that i watched all throughout my 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 preteen teen years and i hadn't watched it in quite a while before coming back and and watching it here i got the rocky box set on vhs for my birthday when i was in sixth grade and the following couple of summers i think i watched through the rocky series maybe two or three times a summer those tapes nice. were just constantly, constantly rotating. Um, my brother and I both really loved these movies. We didn't really watch Rocky one nearly as much as we watched uh, three and four. Okay. But if if you're talking about what is going to speak to a seventh grader and a 
uh, you know, a younger kid, it's going to be the bigger, louder productions of Rocky three and, and certainly Rocky four. <laughs> but as I've, as I've grown up, which is still an ongoing process, I guess, but as I've gotten older, I've come back to Rocky one and two more than three and four. Right I, I've seen this, I've seen Rocky probably, I mean, I've seen it at least 20 to 30 times. Dang. I had no idea. Yeah. And no, what about what a fight? This is my yeah. first time ever watching it. That's awesome, man. Yeah, that is awesome. <laughs> so maybe we should be asking you, what did you think? Well, maybe we can hold off on what you thought. Okay. To the end. Continue, sir. <laughs> <laughs> um, with, with this Rocky sort of storyline, what is it that draws people in, you think? Like, what is it that people fall in love with this movie for? It could be you, right? Like, it's that kind of uh, attraction. Basically, if if you are a man over the age of, like, 25, you could be Rocky. Like, that's the way it's presented, right? Uh, and I, and I, I, qual- I quantify, you know, I say 25, basically anybody that's past like their, their physical prime, right? And you can still be like coming into your physical prime into your, what, your 50s or your 60s or whatever. But, but generally speaking, that's like your, that's like your, 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 your apex, right? As far as when you're closest to a paragon of, 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 of the human condition, right? And this is very much a masculine movie. It was more, uh, apparent this time around than whenever the last time was that I watched Rocky, which had to have been at least like, I don't know, five or 10 years ago, something like that. Uh, but you know, the other component, like I could see many women watching this movie and taking inspiration from it. But at the same time, I also think it would be something to watch and it would be problematic if all you're doing is seeing, like Talia Shire. And she's she's a great actor and I love the the love story in this in this movie, but at the same time, I think it speaks to uh men in their late 20s and onward because it's that that almost like uh you can be a hero. Here's your chance, right? Yeah, this this movie takes the American dream and sort of boils it down not death the roads baby but it <laughs> it certainly takes the 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 notion that you can work your way up if you just work hard and focus and perfect your craft you can go from the very bottom to the heights and i think this film uh, more than any other film that i can think of off the top of my head right now captures that uh that notion that the american dream is attainable all you have to do is work and rocky as luke said he wasn't a man of means. He wasn't even really that good of a fighter at the beginning of the film. Uh, he's not very smart. I wouldn't say he's especially good looking. Like he's just kind of an average dude, right? Like he, right. he doesn't really have any advantages in particular other than uh, he can hit really hard and he can withstand a lot of punishment. There's a lot there that I think we're going to unpack over the course of however long this episode lasts. Uh, I have a lot to say about this American dream aspect of Rocky. Okay. But before we get into all that, I think it's probably best to summarize the film for those who may not have seen it. So can you give a quick synopsis of what happens in Rocky? Uh, So we start out with the opening fanfare 
and there's Jesus imagery that we see as the very first shot of the movie, and it pans down, and we see Rocky getting the hell whipped out of him in the ring. Uh, but he gets pissed and he wins. Uh, basically, Rocky <laughs> is an over-the-hill boxer who is working, at least on the side, as uh, some muscle for... Uh, I don't know, uh, a guy that's probably not on the up and up with his activities oh, yeah. in Philly. A loan shark. Yeah. yeah he's a loan shark. He's a, an a, Italian loan shark, right? And so he's he's working with that guy. He feels uh, that he could have done more. He could have been more. There's a scene that really stood out to me with this watch through of when, when Rocky first goes home and he's talking to his animals and he looks at the picture of himself and you can tell the intent of that shot is – you know, he's thinking back to who he was at that point and, mm-hmm. and it's, how he's not the, the man that he envisioned that he would be. Uh, yeah. It's a see. photo of him when he was a kid, right? Yeah. Yeah. That, that scene is pretty powerful. He's, uh, what do I have here? Uh, I wrote down Italian stallion in Philly. It's a burned out urban yeah. husk. There's a strong sense of like urban decay here in this. It's almost like an apocalyptic landscape. Uh, and basically, Rocky is a, a boxer on the boxer by night, a boxer as he gets a chance. He fights when he can to make some extra money, but he's not doing the thing that his heart suggests that he should be doing. And in fact, he's a he's a pretty piss poor piss poor like bit of muscle for a loan shark because he doesn't want to be a bad guy. He's got a big heart, right? Yeah. He's lacking on brains. Uh, he <laughs> is doing uh, what he can to get in the good graces of Adrian. Uh, and she's uh, open, but also not, uh, I guess, accepting of his advances. She's just sort of standoffish, right? And well, She doesn't understand being wanted is what it came off as. Right. Yeah, she doesn't know that she's being pursued right yeah uh apollo creed big fight is offered to rocky and rocky takes the job there's also mickey who is his coach and they have an antagonistic relationship that i think is pretty interesting to to talk about (laughs) uh i mean does somebody else want to pick up here i feel like i'm just rambling no i think you're doing great uh so with with uh what you said about mickey so Mickey is uh, portrayed by Burgess Meredith, who I just, I don't know if I've mentioned this, but I just adore Burgess Meredith. (laughs) And this is one of my favorite roles that he's ever been in. Mickey kicks Rocky out of his locker and puts him on. That's a very pivotal scene, it seems like. Yeah, he puts him on Skid Row. He's, he, uh, Rocky tries to get into his locker. He can't. Someone tells him, hey, I bagged your stuff up. That's not your locker anymore. And Rocky confronts Mickey about it, and it boils down to Mickey knows that Rocky is working for a crime boss, basically, right? And he's and he's a bum. And I think this is all because, like, this is tough love in the extreme, right? Like Mickey is trying to say to Rocky, "Look, you've got you've got heart, you've got guts, but you're you're just no good. You're a bum." I don't, I don't it's, know. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, John. I was just going to say, isn't the quote, it's a living from Rocky. And he says, it's a waste of life is what it is. (laughs) You're a tomato. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Mickey's a son of a bitch. 
You think so? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Like on this rewatch, it really struck home. Like I don't, I don't. He's not necessarily supposed to be a likable guy. He's supposed to be a, oh. a sort of a shitty grandpa figure that that really talks the tough love to Rocky. But at the same time, he is not. Uh, he's not admirable. Like even like the oh. scene in which the the they're at Rocky's apartment and. Mickey's giving him the what for, and Rocky starts giving it back. Like, Burgess, you know, this is a comeback story with the the Jesus imagery and the things, you know, that we can get in there with the myth that we can get into. It's as much uh, sort of a comeback story for Mickey as it is for, for Rocky, too, right? Because, like, Mickey says at one point in that, that scene that he's, like, he's past his prime. Mm. Clearly, he's, a, he's an old codger, and he's he's... He feels like Rocky has something that's a waste, but I think it's, you know, it relates to uh, Mickey's own feelings about himself. Well, and Mickey is himself pretty flawed, right? Like we've talked about Rocky having a big heart, but, you know, some of his flaws are that he never really sort of lived up to his own expectations. Neither did Mickey. And Mickey has been through the ringer and he's fought dudes who fought dirty Right, he he shows Rocky his scars, and he's like, hey, seventy six stitches in that one." You know, the only thing I'd roll about you is you've never had your nose broken. <laughs> he he says he fought a dude who had nails, roofing nails or something inside his boxing glove, and just punched the hell out of his face. Mickey has had a a hard life and has seen. The good in people and the bad in people. And I'm not trying to say that that's why he is a son of a bitch because, you know, that's no excuse. But rather, I think that uh, Mickey is uh, an REH character in a sense. Like he he's gotten in touch with some of these really terrible facets of civilization and has lived on the edge of civilization and barbarism and is... You know, that those things have taken a toll on Mickey and the way he deals with people, maybe. I can see what you're saying. Yeah, for sure. But at the same time, like, I'm I'm with you, Luke. I love Mickey as a character, but he comes across in this viewing as an opportunistic kind of uh, le- yeah. leech almost. I mean, the, the people, like, the, both, both uh, Polly and Mickey are... Like, they're not genuine the way that Adrian is. Adrian loves right. Rocky. Right. Those two guys are, are to some extent, hangers-on. I mean, that's why I think this movie is is really great, uh, beyond just being, like, a good sports movie. I think it's these, the the ancillary characters in the story. That's So, I mean, to put a bow on the plot, though, we're talking about Mickey is... He's trying to get Rocky to agree to let him be his trainer because Apollo Creed has lost his opponent for his big bicentennial match. January 1st, 1976, the 200th birthday of America. He is going to fight somebody, and his idea is Apollo Creed will fight a nobody, the Italian Stallion. He wants to fight a white man. He wants to fight a white man, Yeah, and he wants to be the best there is. And he... He also liked Rocky's name. Like, that's that's yes. why Rocky got picked, right? It wasn't for any other reason other than that sounds really good. It would look good on a poster. Like, the yep. the uh, Italian Stallion versus He's Apollo Italian, Creed. Which are the people that discovered America, quote-unquote. And 
on the 200th birthday, I'm going to fight the Italian stallion. Apollo Creed fights the Italian stallion. Sounds like a movie title, he says. <laughs> so they set up the fight. The promotion's all done. Rocky shows up. He's been training real hard. Ultimately goes the distance. All he wants to do, he gives a really poignant speech the night before the fight to Adrian as they kind of lay down to, to go to sleep about all he needs to do is go 15 rounds with Apollo Creed and he'll know that he's got something inside him. He doesn't want to beat him. He doesn't need to beat him to prove to himself that he's in, he's made it as a man, as a fighter. All he has to do is go the distance with Apollo Creed, and he does. He goes all full 15 rounds. Creed, they sort of indicate, didn't train as much as Rocky perhaps, uh, was just having a good time dressing as George Washington <laughs> and shucking and jiving down into the ring. But they go the full 15 rounds walloping on each other. And the end of the match is a decision for Apollo Creed. Rocky is way beyond the boxing ring when the match ends. All he wants to do is see Adrian. And what are his final words in the movie, Josh? You, Adrian! And she comes over. They confess their love to each other and submit this movie sort of as a, a romance movie almost. That this is him accepting himself declaring his love for a woman and agreeing with Apollo Creed there won't be any rematch we're not we're, gonna, we're not going to do this again we've both got enough out of this one interaction with each other and and that's where it ends and i think like so this movie really does have i think great sound editing like there are layers to the movie the like the the almost hushed tones, but you're able to hear like Rocky and Adrian's exchange where they're proclaiming their love for one another. That's in the background. Like that's on the undercurrent. You hear that. And that's like the, the more poignant, that's the important component of the story. While, uh, Apollo is winning the fight, like getting the, the decision announced, right? Like that's something that's sort of going, going on the, the forefront. Right. And so it's cool how, in a cinematic perspective, like, like it works and it works especially for a film because you get sort of both scales at which the, pl- the story is playing out. And I mean, I think the reason that I, that Rocky is great, I think is that intimacy, like the relationship between those two lovers and then the, the shitty uh, side characters of that are, that are friends of Rocky's so-called friends with air quotes, right? Like that, that kind of, those are, those are the, the, the cool drivers of the story. I love those scenes where Adrian is sort of by herself waiting in the, in the locker room while the fight's going on. And you, you have these hard cuts from the chaos of the fight and the crowd and the, the impact of the, the boxing gloves on the faces of Apollo and, and on Rocky and then suddenly you're in the, the locker room with Adrian and it's it's quiet. You know, she's looking at the clock and she's looking at the door. And uh, the, yeah, the, I think the, those aspects of the sound really kind of stand out to me. The, those scenes, I think, speak volumes about what you just said about the scales at which the story operates. It's cool. Like there's like another thing that struck me too watching at this time around like the scene where Rocky and Mickey are having their row sort of like out like in the apartment complex so Rocky's in his 
apartment and Mickey's on the stairs and they're yelling back and forth. You know from the the cuts and the the design and sort of the perspectives of things that everybody in that apartment complex is hearing this and that it's like you're hearing Rocky's voice bellowing like there's a there's at least a shot or two outside of the building sort of mm-hmm. looking on and you see like Mickey's on the stairwell and that I think is the like really gets it across. It's also interesting too that there's like I, and maybe it's a consequence of the relatively low budget of the movie. I, I, I don't know if that's fair to say, but but the scale of this movie, there's there's not a lot of people like on the streets outside of like right. occasional like gang dudes like singing songs, singing, singing doo wop songs, doo-wop. But but it's kind it's sparse and it lends to that sort of apocalyptic like burned out like everything is depressing feel of the story. Like you feel like there's only about. 50 people in Philly, like where Rocky, where Rocky's at. And you, you mentioned earlier that the, the set, it's not really a set, like they were actually in Philly, right? Oh. Like they were on location and it feels like a post-apocalyptic movie, but no one acts like they're in a post-apocalyptic movie. Mm-hmm. Like even the, I, I would say the, the most uncivilized person in this film is Polly, right? Uh, Adrian's brother who is an alcoholic, he's a rageaholic, he's depressed, he's there's any number of of issues with with Polly and he is certainly taking advantage of Rocky because he wants to make some cash off Rocky's name. Uh I don't, I don't think there's anything redeemable about about Polly. But otherwise, you know, it doesn't seem as though uh, Immortan Joe and his forces inhabit this world. You know, it's it's a <laughs> it's a world that is largely pretty friendly, and the friendliness largely stems, I think, from Rocky because he's such a a nice dude. He cares about his pets. He cares about Adrian. He cares about Polly, even though Polly is a a total uh, washed up jerk that's using him. He cares about the, the, the girl on the street that he educates, right? Who then like sort of cusses him out or tells yeah. him he's a loser or whatever. Screw you, creepo. <laughs> creepo. <laughs> uh, so he's he's just a caring dude, and he puts a lot of that out into the world. And I think he gets that sort of directed back at him from, you know, in terms of the love from the people of Philadelphia uh, that they have toward him. I think that's a good segue into something you were discussing with Luke and I before the show. You and Luke, I think, have both pointed out this Jesus image at the beginning <laughs> of the movie and some messianic, uh, messianic tones to, to Rocky. And I need some convincing on that. I okay. need to hear what you both are feeling and thinking about that before I can really buy in hard on that. Sure. Okay. So I'll, I'll, I'll be brief. Luke pointed out a second ago that the first scene that you see in this film is a picture of Jesus, a big picture of Jesus, right? Close up tight on his face. And then you pan out and you see that this is a mural at the resurrection gym, right? Is the name of the place, or at least that's sort of plastered onto this mural. Mm-hmm. So I had never, and and I told you guys, I've watched this a ton of times never picked up on how sort of large 
that is right up front. Like it, it's like a big blinking light, just sort of like, hey, look at this. Check this out. <laughs> get ready. Jesus get, right here. There might be some Jesus themes in this film. Right. And I had never really paid attention to that before. So you see this this big mural of the Savior. And then you pan down and you see Rocky. And he obviously, you, I mean, you begin to learn this, but it's obvious that he is not in his prime as, as a fighter. And you get the sense from his interactions with Mickey that his career is dead. And through the course of this film, Rocky's career and indeed his life are rejuvenated, right? They're dead. They're gone. But they are brought back to live again. And the, the major sticking point that I want to put forward here is that at the end, even though he's been given this shot, he doesn't win the fight, right? But he is victorious nonetheless, because he's able to achieve his goal of going the distance with Creed. And so this is about the, the death and rebirth of a, a man's career and indeed the complete transformation of his life from a very normal one to a very unique one that we would learn about if we move on into Rocky II. Okay. But even at the end here, no, no one has gone the distance with Creed. They say that over and over. No one has knocked Creed down. Rocky does that in the first round. And so he's transformed his life or his life has been transformed from a very ordinary life to one that's very extraordinary. Okay. Luke, and, what and are that's, your that's where I'll hand, hand off the baton. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the opening shot is a picture of Jesus and it's like the resurre- resurrection gem as, as Josh says. So I think, I think the intent from the the writing and the direction is clearly established. Uh, I don't. I mean, they they could have picked, you know, another gem. Like there's 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 other places they could have easily opened up this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess that's the first thing to sort of tie it to this Jesus theme. I think I think that's the intent. I don't think that you can deny that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's established now. As far as the the strength of the linkage there, I think with any sort of comeback story, there's the the cycle and maybe it's even as simple as how we like a three act play to sort of play out right across like any sort of adventure but but you have death and resurrection of of the protagonist and here we have lots of characters that go through this this period of rejuvenation because of rocky right like lots of people's lives are touched by by rocky's right and it's because of his heart right uh Rocky turns the cheek over and over and over again, like uh, an Iron Man by definition, like they're just able to take a, take a whip and then keep on ticking. Right. Like they are able to take the licks and just roll with the punches and go and go and go. And that's, that's a fairly, that's a fairly Christian approach to, or mindset to, to things, I think. Uh, so I think, there's a lot of ways to unpack it, but the the overall arc of Rocky's career you can think about from this perspective. You could also look at Rocky's impact on the larger community 
to see sort of him as a Christ figure. And I think the, the just overall structure of the plot follows that sort of that, that rebirth story. Okay. Can I offer my divergent perspective, please? That's, that's my MO on the Chromecast, right? I'm the guy that says something weird at the end of the show. (laughs) Uh, I guess when I saw Jesus, I didn't think of Rocky as a Messiah figure. I took the Jesus to mean a belief in faith that Rocky and others in the movie display a faith in the quote American dream. This idea that that hard work and perseverance and belief in oneself and the meritocracy will pay off in the end, despite all of the hardships you may have endured through the years, eventually all of those dues paid will come back to you in the end. The resurrection that you two mentioned to me is more of this like payoff, this idea that America owed Rocky. So America paid up to Rocky. So Rocky, Uh, so Rocky's, so Rocky's penitent and he ultimately is rewarded for his penitence. I, I don't know if I'd go that far as much as I would say Rocky has, Rocky to me epitify epitomizes a lot of class struggle in America. Okay, this is going to get weird. I guess. <laughs> oh, no, dude, no. I, I, I'm on. I, I think that that's why Rocky is such a big thing. Yeah. Okay. So here's my journey that I took watching Rocky. Okay. Rocky is an Italian American. Italian Americans at one time were a look down upon cast of society. Mick represents the Irish Americans who were also once upon a time, this downtrodden class of Americans, Apollo Creed, the current champion represents African Americans represents sort of Muhammad Ali. Am I off base? No, saying that? no, not at okay. all. Yeah, I don't think so. What do you think? So, Luke? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think he's definitely that. Okay. So represents the seventies black power movement, this move towards African American champions, acceptance of of black people in the sporting community and together all of them represent the boxing history this idea that that boxing was this avenue for success in america irish people took it italian people took it and then black people took it and today you can look and see the hispanic community taking it it's this avenue towards the american dream for so many people brutality and athletic prowess is the the upward mobility that we promise so many people when they come to America. And Apollo is offering that to Rocky, right? Like he is the champion. He, he hands this silver platter over to Rocky. That is my problem with everything that I read about Rocky has said, this shows the American dream. It shows that hard work pays off when really Rocky's big break comes because his name is the Italian stallion. (laughs) It is. And Mick says it at one point in the movie. He says, this is dumb luck. All that you have is dumb luck on your side. But I think better fighters. Oh, I'm I'm sorry. Go ahead. Just prove me. I want. No, no, no. Well, I think I think if you were to uh, talk to Rocky in the movie or if you were to uh, tap into a lot of people's sort of emotional response to the movie that you would get the you would get an opinion at least 
from a large part. I think Rocky would say this, that, that he feels like because he wanted it so bad, like that, that it was deserving, right? You get your, you get your, uh, your just desserts, right? Like played out and, and provided to you. Like it's, it's, it's something that is, uh, I don't know if just desserts like that's the, that's not necessarily the right the right terminology but but basically like like Rocky didn't just get it through dumb luck while Nick may or while Mick may say that it was sort of like Rocky is special because of his heart right like Rocky isn't he truly isn't an everyman Rocky is an Iron Man right and not every everyman is an Iron Man every everyman wants to be an Iron Man but mm-hmm. that's not the case right mm-hmm. and that's part of my Okay. Problem with this, not this movie, but the 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 sort of psychology that goes into the characters in this movie, and sort of the mythology around it too. Like, like I I really do like Rocky, but at the same time, it's it is not something that I fully embrace. I don't know if that's. I think. I like what you're saying there because to me, when you look at Rocky and Polly and Mick, you're looking at a timeline. Like there's there's Rocky who has this good heart. He's a good man, but life can strip that away from you and turn you into a Polly, and then it further strips you down into like Mickey has given up. Uh, uh, he's he sort of accepted his lot in life as this guy that runs a gym and and take stuff away from people like Rocky could have been Polly and Mickey if given enough time and not enough shots, but fate intervenes and saves him. And I hear what you're saying. I like this idea that he, his heart is the reason he makes it. He believes hard enough that he gets there. Go. I don't, I do not espouse all of, of, of Nietzsche's, sort of uh philosophies but i mean this is very much like the nietzschean uh like slave morality right this and that's like that how nietzsche defined christianity that there is the like the the whole turn the other cheek morality is your way to sort of uh usurp or take take the power away from the the person holding the whip right and so that's why you see the uh these types of moralities play out that like rocky very much is an embodiment of like the hero within that kind of story as is jesus right. <laughs> and to to add to that um you know something that strikes me in this during this conversation is uh you guys know i'm a big fan of kevin smith and in dogma there's this scene where they talk about you know imagine jesus as a child and imagine explaining the stuff to that child that that child's the son of god right and it's going to have to go through all this imagine doing that that kid didn't ask for any of this well rocky didn't ask for this this chance right it was given to him was it providence that sort of led him to this chance was was it fate was it uh uh, you know, God the Father giving the Son the chance to <laughs> to uh, prove himself. I, I you mean, know, this is the attractiveness of like Peter Parker, right? Like that's the cool thing about Spider Man is he's just a kid who happened to got 
to have been bit by the spider, right? Mm-hmm. Like he's he's smart and he's a he's bookish and and all of those things. But the cool thing about like that character or like Captain America is that they they're the everyman that mm-hmm. can sort of come up with it. And it wasn't gonna be Rocky, right? In the beginning of the no. film, it wasn't gonna be Rocky. A, a dumb twist of fate uh, found the 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 guy that Apollo challenged uh, unable to compete. So a lot of yeah. I'm sorry, go, John. Go ahead, Luke. Oh no, 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 no. Go no, ahead. no. <laughs> so I mean, I don't think I don't think anybody needs convincing here. Like, like John, I don't necessarily feel like Josh and I were like setting out to convince you or you were setting out to convince us. I mean, I oh. think we're all interpreting the movie. Right. But as far as what we're talking about here, John, like what you worked through with your interpretation of Rocky and the other characters in the movie being components or sort of constituent minorities in relation to the American dream. I think, I think that ties into this messianic like plot that plays out. Okay. Uh, Do you, I don't know. I don't know if I'm trying to, I don't know if I want to, I don't have a question. I mean, like, do you, do you see that? Like, or do you think that I, I see what you're saying? I do. And I don't disagree with you. I think that my take was that it was less uh, judgmental, maybe, of Polly and and Mickey, in that they had an opportunity as well associated with Rocky, and that upward mobility in the United States society, whatever you want to call it, is less a meritocracy and more of a there's an opening, let's take it. Like Mickey had to take the shot. It was his last chance to be somebody. He was grasping at straws with Rocky. And I judged him less harshly for that. I, I think he is an SOB, like you said before. But he he saw his opening and he took it, I guess, is how I interpret it. That you don't get a, a whole lot of those in a lifetime. Right. He's a human, for sure. He's and human. Like he's an American. He, and and there was something where he could move up in society a little bit, and he took that chance, and it was Rocky, and Polly. Polly wants a shot as well. Like he talks about that a lot in the movie. Just talk to the loan shark for me. Just tell him I'm a good guy. I break the legs. I do whatever, you know. But he, life has stripped away Polly's humanity. Uh, he's just this guy that moves meat in a meat packing facility. And drinks four roses bourbon while he does it. <laughs> That's true. Uh, and and Rocky represents a chance. I, so I see that Messiah thing that you're talking about. Rocky represents the chance, the American Messiah, the opportunity to move away from where you're at to where you want to be. Yeah. I saw a different religion, Americanism, <laughs> okay, rather than Christianity. Well, and it is kind of a statement on America and your uh, ability or uh, lack thereof in terms of enhancing your station, right? Which is something that's very American, this this notion that you can start down here and work your way up. Other Other cultures don't necessarily believe that, right? 
right. or, or place such an emphasis on it. Maybe you're born uh, the son of a fisherman and you're raised and you learn how to become a fisherman and then you are a fisherman yourself and, and that's fine and that's enough. And there aren't the societal pressures to enhance your station and your lot in life. But in right. the good old USA, that pressure is certainly real. Very real. I think that that's the important part of, of having Apollo talk about he wants the white fighter. I, I There's a lot of race stuff that we could unpack there. Maybe <laughs> yeah. we're not the three best people equipped to do that. But uh, this idea that, that a black man in 1976 wants to fight a white fighter for publicity, for fame, for the sheer novelty of it, uh, there's a lot there. I don't know. I don't know how to expound upon that. Do you? It it feels touchy, right? Like <laughs> like this yeah. movie is 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 touchy. Like in in 2017, uh, and I mean we're a a podcast of three like white dudes in their 30s, so it's hard for us to to really you know appreciate all all aspects of this, but it's. It doesn't strike me as a as as sophisticated a narrative as it as it might would be if it was presented now, mm-hmm. like the way that this plays out. But I think it is still interesting nonetheless, and I do not think that it's a a a racist uh, presentation of 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 the black man the way that we see. Uh, Apollo Creed presented here. He is empowered. And I think, I mean, like, again, I, I said this before, like, I think all of the side characters are what make Rocky a cool, awesome movie. If it was just like Rocky coming up through the ranks and, you know, getting knocked down and then coming back in to win at the end, it wouldn't have the resonance to me that, that it does here. And, and Apollo is a kick ass villain because he's not super villainous. He's, no. Yeah. He's he's someone you can empathize with, and that's why. I mean, I know Josh. You said before that you want like like talking about the second movie mm. sort of expands the 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 narrative that we could get into here. But I think it's I think Apollo is is really interesting just right here and mm-hmm. presented as he is. Yeah, Apollo is not a supervillain, right? He's not oh. twirling his mustache and and you know, plotting the downfall of Western civilization or anything like that. I don't think, but I, I don't think necessarily, I mean, he, Apollo is the antagonist, but he's not a villain. I don't think. No, he doesn't do anything to cause Rocky any grief. In fact, he gives Rocky this shot, right? Right. That was my big takeaway was that, Apollo is not a villain. They're both two guys who their only chance at upward mobility was was whooping each other, was mm-hmm. was beating on other people. That was their one shot at glory. Sure. And Rocky missed his until Apollo came along, and Apollo has capitalized on his opportunities. Apollo has succeeded where Rocky has failed, but offers this gilded opportunity to him. I, I don't know what that means, I guess. Yeah, I don't I don't really know. Well, Apollo brings him in and is confident he's gonna whip him. Like like Apollo's still looking out for number one. Like everybody here 
well, again, outside of Adrian, who has like the heart of gold, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, but all of the all of the men in this movie have like these side characters all have motives, right? Uh, and so Apollo is is still very much American and still very much looking to get paid and look for a way to sort of climb the ranks. But you, he's understandable the same way that Polly is, and the same way that that Mickey is. I don't know. I don't know. No, I hear what you're saying. That he knows what sells, right? I think that one point he says, "This isn't just a good idea; it's a smart idea." That that <laughs> does he say that? that? Yeah, that's awesome. It, yeah, that's gold. <laughs> uh, that that he knows this will be something yeah. that people will tune in to see. Uh-huh. Him fight the Italian stallion, the fight a white guy, Italian guy from Philly. Um, so he's savvy in a way that maybe the other characters aren't, which I think you already said it's not racist. I didn't detect any racism in this movie. Just it doesn't feel like it. It just feels like it's a little bit superficial, a, a little bit superficial uh, with the yeah. like, like to take the 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 trope of Ali and sort of plug him into this movie like you could have and, and but it's it's awesome because there's these layers that clearly we're struggling to talk with here it's just that it feels <laughs> like it's a very direct and at least for us at least for the three you know white dudes in their 30s talking about this i i feel like it's tiptoeing across a like uh, an area with some holes in the ground, right? Like I, I, I'm, I, I really like this character and I like the way he's portrayed, but at the same time you have to be wary of like stereotypes. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I've heard a lot about Rocky before. If you ever watched uh, cracked after hours, they have a special about, about Rocky, I think. And they sort of portray it as this is white people taking back boxing history. This is the idea that, Rocky is the superior fighter and he steals the thunder that of Muhammad Ali took in the seventies and brings it back to white people. I didn't get that necessarily from this movie, particularly since Rocky doesn't win, but I took more of after learning about boxing from REH about this idea of sometimes boxing is the only way for these disadvantaged people to, to make it in the world. Yeah. The Italians, the, the the Hispanics, the black people, that kind of thing. And, you know, Rocky says some, some very REH-inspired lines in this movie. Like, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but he says something to the effect to Polly, like, you know, I'm I'm a I'm a fighter, you're you're good at packing meat or whatever. Something like that. Um he he's very fatalistic, I guess. He's he he knows he can't beat Apollo. But that's not his goal. And I think that, I think that the fact that, you know, the theme of the movie is not the, this white character, Rocky Balboa, training and training and fighting to beat the black champion. But instead, you know, you see Apollo as someone who is really great. He's, he's great. Um, he's never been beaten. He's never even been locked down. He's uh, knocked down. He's only, he's won 40 some fights and, uh, and never lost. He is a force. Apollo is a force of nature. 
He's he's uh, a huge obstacle, but he's never, I think, portrayed as you know the um, the the superhuman magical Negro or anything like that. You know the these tropes that you often find uh, black actors sort of portraying. I didn't get really any of that out of Apollo. He's just a very gifted fighter and his and he's a salesman and he's a salesman but he's he his weakness is that he uh is proud i guess his hubris his hubris <laughs> is weak. which we don't really get into until the sequel so mm-hmm. i can't talk about it <laughs> so he's yeah. not bagger vance no he's not well i mean i think that this movie really presents interesting male characters to me with the rewatch it like i i just wish there were were at least a couple more women in the movie because it it does not necessarily like i i i like i mean really we're only introduced to adrian and then the the girl on the street right creepo <laughs> like are are there any other women in the movie i mean there's the reporter no, the, the reporter lady yeah. like this this movie totally fails the what is it the Bechdel test the Bechdel right? test like, <laughs> like it, it doesn't it doesn't pass but there's lots of movies especially of this age that just buy like this is a very masculine movie in a lot of ways but it's also like as you started out the 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 sort of notes for the the story too John like this is very much a romance too like this is all about Rocky and Adrian so this the second most important character within the movie is a woman, but only insofar as she's supporting Rocky. Right. Right. Uh I I just feel like that is where the movie's thin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It it doesn't pack the Bechdel test and She's just a caretaker. I mean, she's a really interesting character. She is, but she still is. Her role is to take care of Polly, and then she takes care of Rocky emotionally. And, I mean, she's the heart of gold, right? We truly do have like the maiden and the whore like played out with with the the whore being like the the girl on the street, right? Mm-hmm. Like like Rocky says, like tells her that that's on the road that in front of her. Uh, like those truly are like the ways that we're presented with things. And does it seem to you guys that Adrian becomes more feminine as the film goes on? Like, yeah, I agree. Like there, yeah, she embraces that beauty standard. There, there's the scene where she's wearing the red coat and is standing on Rocky's uh, stoop. Right. Mm-hmm. And he, he's coming back from a workout and he sees her and he tells her how pretty she is. Like that's, she's, she's wearing red firstly. Um, and even though she's wearing a coat, like, it it flares in such a way that it it demonstrates her figure. Yeah. Uh, so she becomes more feminine as the movie goes on, as she becomes closer to Rocky. Yeah, she's very awkward, right in the in the the, the pet store, and then she comes out. She's ready to go on her Thanksgiving date, and she's like got a long coat on, and she's mm-hmm. still wearing her glasses. Like it's it's like the layers are being peeled off right. <laughs> of mm-hmm. Adrian the whole way through. Yeah, and she becomes more feminine as he embraces our masculine principles, quote unquote. As he becomes more empowered, more confident, and yeah. more confident. 
it's very this is a very traditional movie right like mm-hmm. traditional gender roles and traditional archetypes uh abound so along those lines of tradition one thing that we discussed on the the chat thread that we have for the Chromecast today is the notion of applying the hero's journey to this and i wondered if you guys had any thoughts pertaining to that it's a weird hero's journey if you're talking about the script uh the call to action doesn't occur until almost an hour into the movie. I don't think like up until that point, we're just seeing Rocky, the, Hey, I walk around, I have the turtles. Uh, I break, (laughs) I don't break the thumbs kind of guy. And then, uh, Carl Weathers calls him into action. Yeah. Yeah. So he spends a lot of time in the, uh, the ordinary world, right. Prior to this call to adventure. Um, what other aspects of the hero's journey jumped out to you guys? I guess Adrian is the goddess that fills him up, that that builds him into a man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does he undergo a magical flight? Is that the training montage, perhaps? I, I think that's <laughs> the training montage with Gonna Fly Now playing, right? Like when he runs up the steps at the end and jumps and – like that's the magical flight if you if you want to take it there. Um, I found a a book that sort of adapts the hero's journey to film, and it's by a guy named Christopher Vogel, and it's called The Rider's Journey: Mythic Structure for Riders. And the uh, he's he condenses so um, Campbell has seventeen steps. This is I think a dozen or so. And it starts with uh, the ordinary world, which we discussed. The call to adventure is second. Refusal of the call. So Rocky is hesitant about whether or not he can uh, even do this. Meeting the mentor is uh, number four, which is pretty obvious and blatant in this, right? Uh, that that meeting with uh, Mickey in the apartment. Crossing the threshold. What do you think the crossing the threshold is? Maybe I'm wrong with the uh, magical flight. Maybe in this model, the run and the workout montage is crossing the the threshold. Hmm? It's when he drinks the eggs. The eggs? (laughs) When he wakes up in the morning and he's groggy and he drinks the eggs and goes on the run and it feels like he's going to die. I think the threshold might be that speech the night before. That it's even that late in his development. Where he realizes, my threshold isn't to beat Apollo Creed, it's to hang with Apollo Creed. I was thinking that was a uh, under number six uh, tests allies and enemies, perhaps like that. That is an internalized sort of struggle that he's going through, but he comes to terms with it. I think the I could be convinced of that. I think the approach to the inmost cave in this model is when he goes to the gym and or uh, the the arena and sees the banners hang in and sees his own. Uh, picture and he tells the guy hey that's that's wrong hey, it's wrong i'm uh i'm wearing white shorts with a right stripe i think that's i think that's very much like the touchstone that's presented here right like he it's it's the magnitude of, of everything that's around him like that's kind of within the notes that you have here like that's that's where it really hits home to him yeah and the guy i think the thing that really hits at home is the guy says it doesn't really matter yeah. does it like no one Rocky realizes now no one expects him to win. 
And this guy sort of laid that out. Then next is the ordeal, which is pretty self-explanatory. The reward uh, is, I think, Rocky just, he goes the distance. He he gets his, he achieves his goal. Yeah. And then there are three more, the road back, the resurrection, and the return with the elixir. And I think in order to discuss these, we would need to go into Rocky 2. <laughs> um, but but maybe not. I, I don't know. Tell us about Rocky 2 then real fast. Uh. Rocky two is kind of a, a mirrored reflection of Rocky one. When you say that, do you mean like evil dead one and evil dead two? <laughs> no, 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 no. It is a direct sequel, but it here we have Apollo at the end of Rocky saying there ain't going to be no rematch. Then in Rocky two, he is so angry that this has happened that he re- he knows that he has to challenge Rocky to a rematch. He knows he has to whoop this guy. And so he does. And so they both train and the fight at the end of Rocky two is not nearly the show of extravagance that the fight at the end of the first Rocky movie is it. it Apollo is a man possessed. Okay. And uh, the difference, though, in Rocky 2 is that at the end, Rocky is able to defeat Apollo. He, do- he does win. And because he does- of his superior training or what? Uh, I, you know, it's, it has been a while since I've seen Rocky 2. I don't think I would say his superior training. I think I would say his ability to withstand punishment, his, his nature as an Iron Man. And I think that I think that Apollo's pride gets in his way. And so I think it would be interesting to apply this model to Apollo's arc from Rocky one to Rocky two and discuss him in the same context. But maybe we need to save that for another time. (laughs) So he's not an Iron Man. Uh, Is Apollo an Iron Man? He takes a lot of he takes a lot of abuse. But from what we understand, he's not used to taking abuse, right? He's used to finishing it. He's used to finishing the fight quick and, and even to the, uh, more to the point, he's able to call the round that he's going to win in, which he does in this, in Rocky, right? He says three, I'll finish him in three. So I don't know. I don't know if Apollo's an Iron Man. He's, he certainly has the, the tiger's eye. <laughs> I don't know. I think that was the biggest thing that I wanted to know more about was is Apollo like what's Apollo's training regime? What's Apollo's history? We we don't know how he got to the top. Uh is he an Iron Man? Is he the bulldog breed? What is his story? <laughs> I think it's sort of presented uh, no, as the, the, the stereotype of Muhammad Ali is He's a black guy, so he's like a good athlete. So that's why he's good. In this film, uh, you mean? Yeah, in general. Like okay. Why black boxers are good. When people talk about it, they sort of like, they use words like instinctual or right out of the jungle and talk about how good of fighters they are, ignoring the fact that Apollo Creed is apparently quite savvy. He's probably a good boxer in totality. And knows how to to beat a guy 
but that's not shown to us so much in this movie. That's what I wanted to know more about. Yeah. Which is what we get in Creed. Is it? Have you not seen Creed? I haven't. Oh, it's a good movie. Okay. But after watching Rocky, I realized that it's pretty much Rocky made in 2016. Okay. <laughs> that was my impression of it, but I want to see it. So my final question for you guys is, would Robert E. Howard have enjoyed this film? Luke, you want to take that one first? Or? I think you would have. Yeah. I think I think yes. I think uh as it stands, he would really like Rocky, the the singular movie. I think he'd really like Mick. You think so? Yeah. Uh but I also think he would enjoy the Rocky movie. I think he would like watching that with us. I think he would like Rocky for a number of reasons. He's kind of a dim witted Iron Man. Right, who's got a big heart and has uh, a dog. Rocky <laughs> Rocky is a lover of animals and animals like Rocky. I think that's I, I think there are a lot of Howardian tropes at play here. It really makes me wonder if Stallone read any of the Costigan stories. That's a good question. That's a good question. We'll have to ask him. Yeah, next time when we have him on the show. <laughs> I I always think of what would Howard like to do with us. I imagine he's one of our friends. Like he would be the fourth member of this podcast. <laughs> and he would like to sit down and watch Rocky with us, I think. And maybe he might want to box us and beat the hell out of us. Maybe. But then afterwards maybe watch Rocky. And have yeah, a, and we drink a, a tall beer. Yeah. Do you guys think that Howard would like Rocky? I do. I think that there, like you said, there's a lot of Howardian tropes in here to begin with, you know, from the, the Iron Man with the heart of gold who loves animals, who, uh, has these, uh, you know, has these sort of barbaric characteristics. He's, he's, if, if, if we take what society is supposed to be like from the Rocky movie here, then, uh, the infrastructure is in decay. Rocky's friends are all trying to make money off him. None of these civilized people are all that good. Rocky is trying to fit in, right? He's trying to fit into the, the system of organized crime, but he's not very good at that. And, uh, I think that he is singular. Maybe, maybe he, maybe I shouldn't say he's singular, but I think that he and Adrian are unique in this film in that they, don't succumb to society's expectations. If society is this model that we're presented with from the, the supporting characters. Right. And so from that standpoint, I think Howard would have found a lot to like about this movie. And, you know, I think that from the standpoint of these, uh, at least surface level similarities between Rocky and sailor, Steve Costigan, I think he would have been pretty impressed with that because you know, he wrote Costigan in the 30s and Stallone wrote Rocky in the 70s. He was the head of his I time. Concur. Yeah, yeah. I think he would have enjoyed a lot of aspects of this film, The just all of it. Yeah, I think he would have dug it. What do you think, Josh? What, do you, what are we going to end on? Um, well, 
let's end on whether or not you liked it. Luke and I have <laughs> talked about whether we like it or not, I think, and we've, we've seen it a few times. So you, this was a first time watch for you. What did you think of the movie? I'm the old greenhorn here. Uh, I dug it. I, at first I was like, I am surprised by this movie, by the thoughtfulness of it and the lack of action. I think pop culture had really readied me for this, uh, like it was all training montage and Rocky punching the meat and that there was little of this other stuff that we discussed, the love story, the denial of ambition, the the sadness that really pervades Rocky's life. But then you watch it and you're like, this is a sad movie. This is not really this upbeat eye of the tiger kind of thing that, that you're led to believe by watching SNL and Animaniacs. Uh, there's there's a lot more to Rocky one than there than there had been prepped for me I guess okay does it make you want to watch the rest of the Rocky films no because understanding the other Rocky films I start to understand that we mythologize Rocky and Sylvester Stallone mythologizes himself within Rocky because Sly Stallone's story is a bit Rocky esque in terms of. He was nobody. Then he wrote Rocky and he's got all these Academy Awards and then he's Judge Dredd and you got the the fall and and all that other stuff. Uh, it, it doesn't make me want to see all those other films. I've seen Rocky four. Is that where he beats Russia? <laughs> he causes the fall of the Soviet Union. <laughs> yeah. And Creed. But. The only reason I want to see the others is to see this arc that you've discussed with me in in our private chat about in Rocky II, he defeats Apollo Creed and and moves on. And then the third movie is Clubber Lang, right? Right. Where he's confronted with a superior fighter and and has to confront that aspect of himself. So watching Rocky didn't make me want to watch those movies, but talking to you, Josh, <laughs> has made me want to watch those other movies. Good. I, well, I will say that from a a pure uh, story perspective, Rocky 1 and 2 are a complete story arc for these characters. They, they really are. Rocky, you don't need the third one? You don't need any of the other ones, honestly. You don't. Um, now... I say that with a lot of love in my heart for Rocky three and four, but those films are fundamentally different. And I think you hit the nail on the head that, that Stallone kind of tries to mythologize himself, especially within Rocky four and, and definitely in Rocky five, which is why Rocky five is no good. Stallone couldn't get out of his own way. So what's Rocky five? Uh, I think I talked about this before, maybe on uh, the episode where we discussed uh, the champ of the forecastle, but Rocky five is the one where he trains a kid to become the champion, but the okay. kid has to fight Rocky at the end okay. and, and Rocky beats the hell out of him. Um, and so what's Rocky six? I've never seen Rocky six. Rocky six is called Rocky Balboa and I've never watched it. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm behind. I haven't watched Rocky Balboa and I haven't watched Creed. Me either. Um, but for a pure nostalgic, like America versus Russia, cold war 
<laughs> sort of weird jingoistic patriotic film, you can't beat Rocky four. And in some ways I think Rocky four is more relevant now than it has been since any, any time since the eighties. <laughs> so it may be worth uh, your time to just fast forward to Rocky four. But I I do recommend to you and and anyone else to watch Rocky and Rocky Two. I think those two films are perfect companions. They they are two halves of a whole that I think really are kind of inseparable. And I think the proof is my seeming inability to discuss Rocky One in a vacuum. And Luke, you've pointed out that this film really is it's a whole complete picture and. Yes, I agree, but I think that it's enriched by its sequel, uh, which is not often the case. It's you, been a, it's been a while since I've seen Rocky Two, but I think I agree with Josh. It's it's a it's a pretty good sequel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's with any of these properties. I mean, whether you're talking about Nightmare on Elm Street, or you're talking about Rocky, or you're talking about Ethan John Rambo. Right, like the the initial entry is worlds different than what the thing is within pop culture. So, mm-hmm. like First Blood is a badass movie, and Rocky is a badass movie, regardless of how farcical the rest of the the sequence of movies becomes. Uh, Rocky is great. I, I really do like it for 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 my own personal hangups with with how i feel about characters in the movie or i guess just how i you know sort of think about it like it's it's awesome and it, it really does resonate with me uh and and i guess maybe i do need to go watch rocky too like now that i've watched rocky here to sort of see him in quick succession and and evaluate that i mean the the characters are badass right like there's so much more to talk about for every one of the characters within the first rocky entry that it does make sense that you could have a at least a more prolonged sort of character arc play out. Polly becomes gentler and kindler as it goes on, right? He's like a dim-witted friend. <laughs> uh, Polly's nature doesn't really change all that much. He becomes maybe a little less aggressive. But ultimately what we're saying is everybody should watch Rocky. If you haven't, for whatever reason, yeah, I think this should certainly be added to your watch list at some point. And whatever, if you haven't seen it, like you don't really, whatever the the notion is that you have of Rocky, it's not what the movie is. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's just very, it's very different. That's a good summary of it. Yeah. Stallone was was awesome. Mm -hmm. Between this and I mean, like, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. It just amazes me that he made Rocky and Rambo two huge pop culture icons, right? Like things that are indelibly ingrained in American pop culture. Mm -hmm. And the first entries in each are these really poignant stories. And then the rest of them are like, Rocky is the killer. He's the best. Rambo, he kills everybody. He's the greatest. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's, it's such uh, a sad story in the the first Rambo entry in the same way that the the first Rocky entry just really doesn't feel good like you you're rooting for this character but the the backdrop is just really depressing Mm -hmm. 
that's why I think you should watch Creed because I think that New Yorker article I sent you, which we'll include in the show notes, is about maybe uh, Sly Stallone ate some crow between some of these franchises. And if you watch Creed, the movie presents Rocky as the Rocky that I saw in this film. This guy that's like, uh, I don't have much luck. Nothing's going my way. He's alone. He All he has is helping Adonis Creed out in this movie. And he resonates more with this version than I saw in Rocky uh, Four when I watched that at the Alamo Theater. <laughs> good. Good. This is a good discussion. Where are we going next, Josh? I don't have any idea. <laughs> uh, uh, is Okay, so I think next we're doing a Dennis Dorgan story. Is that true? That's right. We're going to do the Destiny Gorilla. Okay. Is it Dennis Dorgan and the Destiny Gorilla? It is. Okay. And we'll talk about who Dennis Dorgan is and why he's not a real person. <laughs> uh, this one is uh, one of Mark Finn's favorites. Because it's got a gorilla in it. Yeah, he likes gorillas. He does. But where can people find us when we cover that topic, Josh? They can find us on the web at thecromcast.blogspot.com. They could get in touch with us if they wanted to let us know what they think of Rocky or Steve Costigan or the real Ghostbusters or <laughs> the Arrival movie or Rocky Four or any topic that you want to talk about by emailing thecromcast at gmail.com or calling the Chromecast hotline and leaving a voicemail. That is 859-429-CROM. And we are on both Facebook and Twitter. We are at the Chromecast. That's us. That's us. We're the best. We, we eat lightning and crap thunder. That's right. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Chromecast, and we'll catch you later on down the line where we're fighting gorillas.
I don't know if do that's. You re- do you remember? Uh, Pe- Pepperidge Farm. Pepperidge Farm remembers. Pepperidge Farm, Pepperidge Farm remembers. <laughs> um, um, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I don't know either, man. 